So welcome back to another episode of this podcast. And today we have Lyra, our producer, and we have our guest, Lan Shi. And we just want to talk about what we started off last week. We talked about Najib, we talked about the legacy of the Razak family. But as we look at the cycle, you know, you know, many people look at Najib's corruption case and just last week, Rosma was found guilty also. Are we coming to a cycle? Because it seems like there is some sort of relationship to what Dung Abdul Razak did many, many years ago. So in this episode, we're going to get Lyra to sort of bring us through the different incidents and we're just going to have some conversation about that. Right. Looks like it's a takeover time. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go straight into the point. We're mm. going to talk about the new realism, which is promoted by Dung Abdul Razak. So let's go into this part where he talks about new realism being that national security receiving high priority following what has happened in May 13, 1969. So because of all this thing, all the issues have been pivoted to race, and privilege that are not the business of conventional forums. So in this concept of neorealism, Dunraza actually promoted the idea of moving away from Westminster system. So what do you think about all this thing? Now, before we even start to talk about that, it's interesting that what you just quoted what Raza said, right? And I think most people, we're not even aware that he said that. Because growing up in Malaysia, you know, before the political revolution, before the change of government, people just sort of have been told, look, this is a social contract, accept it. And we sort of have always had this racial dominance being imposed upon us. But of course, in recent time, people start to dig back to the future. And all of a sudden, we go back to May 13. We know the reporting was very hazy. Official record cannot be trusted. You know, there were some scholars who went to London to dig out the official archive and there were even some suggestion that it was a conspiracy, but we're not going there today. And yet, not many people understood the kind of decree, the kind of declaration made by Razak, which totally shifted us away from the political roots. You know, we inherited the Westminster British system. So that's just something, you know, when I first heard about that, I just felt like, wow, something was changed so early in a stage of our young nations and we sort of have kind of just run alongside. So now, of course, people start to be aware. So that's just my initial thought when I heard about that comment because to hear in the actual quotation, it feels like he was trying to change the foundation and fabric of our nation. Yeah. I mean, Dun Raza, the ex-Prime Minister Dun Raza, he did call that National Day of Tragedy for May 13. And to understand that type of shift, we have to go back to... Prior to that, you know, since independence, we know that until 1969, Malaysia was one of the few Asian countries that has the most sophisticated Western-style parliamentary democracy and private enterprise economy. Prior to 1969, it was also said that the government interference in the businesses of daily life of citizens is not as bad as now. You know, it's not the big government style, but it's really the small government type of interference in the businesses and things start to shift after May 13, 1969. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned small government, limited government. What a lot of people didn't know very, very early on, Tunku Adoramon was the one who actually suspended local elections mm-hmm. because of confrontasi. Mm. So because of that, would you think that people actually had the wrong perception of 
actually Malaysia started off with a small government rather than a big government or big government has always been the root of this nation. Because when Malaya obtained independence 1957, then of course the next five, six, seven years leading up to the formation of Malaysia 1963, at the backdrop, there was this communist movement. You know, it was after World War II and somehow the communist manifesto, the doctrine were very attractive because people seem to think, hey, if we have socialism, we can prevent all the ills of the world. You know, that's the mindset. And so the British was very conscious about all this and try to suppress that. So I do feel like even before Malaysia was formed, the seeds of big government was there already. And mm. it's like just giving... So it's like every time you have a, you have a security issue, you have confrontasi with Indonesia. And of course, after Singapore left, the rumor was that Sarawak also wanted to leave. But then Malaya sent military and that's why we have Roscom, we have all the regiment there. So when you send soldiers, people is like, okay, forget it. We're not going to fight. We're not going to sacrifice our life. So it's almost like every time there is a security issue, it becomes an excuse for government to have more power. And we saw that with two years of COVID and lockdowns. And, and Lara, you're mentioning about what Canadian Prime Minister did, right? Just a year ago or so. Yes. So what he did was because of what he perceived as a national emergency where there is just a lot of protests with like thousands of truckers, because all they wanted was actually to put a stop to lockdown. So each time you see every government, and especially those leaders that are very, very charismatic, like Trudeau, they would just say certain things that appeal to the group of people. It's like, oh, it's for the common good. It's for the betterment of everyone else. But what they don't realize is that there's so much suppression, cancel culture. And what he did to the truckers were very, very alarming, where he canceled literally. It's like, if you were actually found to be involved in the protest, your bank's account are being suspended. So I think it's the same thing as what Malaysia has gone through. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the root, where national emergency was being declared. Yes, there is this May 13 riot, but people didn't know that actually only like 137 died. Reported, yeah. Yeah, mm. reported one, based on declassified documents from the public record office. But based on this, just small little amount of people died. No, we're not saying that the lives of these people don't matter. Mm -hmm. But does it warrant for national emergency? Does it warrant for really just the government taking control of this whole thing? A new order is being established. And then we begin to see, as you dig down, you begin to see it's because the alliance actually lose two-third majority. And they have precedent because... 1964, remember, when Sarawak was going through their own state elections, uh, right after Singapore left, there was also emergency declared over Sarawak and then Kaloningang was removed. The case went all the way to Privy Council. So it's very interesting. We talk about how Razat, when he talked about the new realism, he also mentioned about moving away from Westminster system, right? And yet, even in the 60s, we're still relying on Privy Council decision. Even right now, when everyone was celebrating ex-Prime Minister Najib's conviction, it is because of the Westminster system we are able to have this conviction. So, so it's like, hey, do we want the common law? Do we want the equitable law? Or, or we want a totalitarian system? I think sometimes people get a bit confused. You know, this episode, I want to talk about all the different breaches. Maybe I'm jumping the gun. But another serious breach was of course the judiciary in the in the 80s okay of course that was by dr mahadir but but we're jumping ahead of ourselves 
But coming back to May 13, I agree totally with what both of you have said. Every time the government sort of lose power, they'll be like, hey, we need to create some emergency. And it's like Mohidin was right. Remember, he did the emergency out of nothing. And even up till today, people are saying that foreign investors are scared of coming back to Malaysia because they never know when another emergency will come. If Sabri is losing power, is it going to cause emergency? So, so that's the thing. We, we do have a history of emergency in Malaysia, a very bad history, I would say. You can't just call for emergency anytime you want. But how do we even begin to prevent that? Yep, yep. Yeah, so, so this is, you know, we, we, we look at the, the Marxist modus operandi to seize power, then you, you create a crisis mm-hmm. and then you press the reset button. <laughs> then, then, then it's like, you know, everything just fall back to, you know, wh- whoever that's ruling power and whatever they want to do again because you see that in COVID. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. the, the, the COVID crisis is a time where many ruling governments in the world, they press the reset button in the name of healthcare crisis. Many seemingly democratic government. Correct. Australian government, New Zealand government are some of the worst in the world. Yeah. So, so it's like everyone have experienced that. Do you think we're coming to a place where people must decide what sort of systems they want? Because it's a bit like what Abraham Lincoln said, right? You know, leading up to the Civil War and he was saying that, look, we can't have half states for slaves and other half say no slaves. Eventually, something will be sorted out. It's one way or the other. So do you think the world is coming to a place where people must choose totalitarian or freedom? Yeah, I, I guess... Across the globe, the awareness, it is more in certain places of the globe and certainly it is lacking in many places as well. I think people are taking personal liberty for granted. You know, with COVID, I think many people don't see that whatever the government put in place in the name of, you know, just just healthcare for everyone, that this can be easily another... It's just like a test run for other things to come. Yeah. But what do you think is the root issue? Why people submit so easily to totalitarian? Is it because like big government, they feel like it's some sort of buffer, some sort of insurance, some sort of fallback? Or, or do you think it is a more systematic reconditioning you know, through education, through government policy? When you study the history of the world, those who want freedom and liberty have to fight for it. It's not something yeah. that is very natural to humanity, I would say, because the history of mankind have always demonstrated strong men who will come and dominate. So do you agree that for people who want freedom and liberty, they perhaps have to take their extra mile, their extra steps? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there really isn't any middle ground if we really want to look at it. I mean, even Abraham Lincoln's opponent, he actually suggested a middle ground solution. But what people don't realize is actually some of these issues are moral issues. Some of these are social issues. Mm -hmm. They are not even something that we should even begin to consider. Let's say slavery. It's a moral issue. Morally wrong to have slave. So why would people still choose Mm. to want to be under slavery? I guess convenience and uh, this statement just kind of caused me to be reminded of World War II. Chamberlain wanted to appease Nazi, appease Hitler. And I mean, you talk about the support that he had was huge. Even the royal family was almost prepared to go the way. I mean, if not for Churchill, I don't know, maybe we have a empire of, maybe Hitler is 
ruling in Europe now. I don't know. I think without Churchill, there is no Europe today. Yeah. I think the history will be very different if there's no Churchill to today. And again, you know, you look at Churchillian type of model and type of figure is hard to come by. You know, you, even if you look at history, I mean, looking back during Churchillian time, 1930s, 1935, 36 time, uh, he was, you know, just warning people about Hitler and everyone was just commenting that, you know, this guy is out of his mind <laughs> because because Hitler was a very charismatic type of figure and, and you can see like when he gave a speech, people just got hypnotized by him. And, and Churchill has his own mind and discernment that he can, he can say, you know, this guy, something is wrong with him. Given time, he's proven right. But this type of voice need to, I think we need more of such mm. figure in today's time. Like Simon said, you know, the, the fight for freedom, for liberty, it, it doesn't come easier. Yeah. Talking about Malaysia, of course, I mean, using the same illustration, it's like, look, May 13, it's like so far away. And for most of us, it's not even in our consciousness, in our generation's consciousness. But remember, for the longest time, the ruling government has always used the specter of May 13 as a threat that if you don't submit to the way we organize the nation, this may happen again. But after so many years, I think finally the genie is out from the lamp and people are like, hey, we're not going to be bothered. We're not going to be scared of the threat anymore. So it's like the exposure after a period of time. But what's happening now is like we see this kind of totalitarian system. One of the reasons I feel people are still not catching out is because the media has been just brainwashing people and we are not even talking about media having different opinion pieces. They are just outright lying. Now, you know, to those who will listen, we always say, look, don't even bother with mainstream media. Yeah. But, but to a lot of people, it's like, hey, you guys are extreme. You guys are crazy. So what do you think about this? Your friends, you know, do you have friends who are still very much into mainstream media? What, what do you say to them? How do you even begin to <laughs> engage without sounding like you're some crazy Donald Trump supporter. It's not even about Trump or, or things like that. It's really, it's happening, right? Don't you think? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you look back three to five years ago, I think not many people can see that. But increasingly, people can see the problem with the mainstream media. So it was say, you know, mainstream media, okay, not quoting any names, but most mainstream media, when they report certain news, they report in such a way that they are like hummingbirds. They, they just say the same thing, you know, it's just like one echoing chamber and you can edit one news or you can edit a fragments of and combine some fragments from few news and you can get back the same sentence like in a verbal time manner. Yep. So it's almost like someone is scripting something behind the scene and just distribute to all these mainstream media and say, hey, you just read it in this manner, you know. But I would say like in Malaysia, somehow that awareness it is still lacking. I think a lot of times we are still under the influence of mainstream media, especially the established media. Very much so. I mean, you look at political leaders and things like that, they are very much still under the influence of the, all these established media and the, the things that they are talking about, even with environmental type of issues and ESG. things like that. Yeah, ESG. Yeah. In fact, ESG is coming into... The other day, I, I, I think I was telling you, that even SSM, you know, the SSM was organizing a national conference and the whole theme was on ESG. And, and now they are saying that, look, if, if you have ESG sort of, now by the way, ESG means environmental, sustainable, corporate governance, okay? So basically it's like 
you have to show that in your company, you are being green, you are being environmentally friendly. I, I mean, it's like the way I do business, what has that got to do with this? But even banks are like, hey, if you show some ESG sort of performance, we will give you more points for more lending and things like that. It's just so crazy. 